This planet still has so much beauty. We have such an indomitable spirit. We have so many people doing amazing things. This is why I'm spending so much energy in developing our youth program, understanding that the, beneath the differences of nation, color of skin, way of dressing, kinds of food we eat, our religion, beneath all this, we're all one human family. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero from Esri, and I'll be your host for today. Trailblazing primatologist Jane Goodall has dedicated her life to studying chimpanzees while stressing the ethical implications of higher animal intelligence on an increasingly developed planet. Today, her institute uses location technology in fascinating ways to protect ecosystems and increase the social good. Here, Goodall tell the story of a new generation of stewards prepared to tackle conservation and Earth's largest threats. Jane, it's a great privilege to have you here with us. Thank you for being here. In these 30 years of advocacy that you traveled the world and raised awareness around animal welfare, conservation, which approaches have been effective to change minds and hearts and which haven't? Well, I only know the ones that have because I haven't tried the ones that haven't. I've always luckily been able to deal with people who think differently from me by telling stories because I truly believe the only way that you can change somebody's mind is not through argument, confrontation, pointing fingers, but to reach the heart. And the only way I know how to reach the heart is through stories. And so, you know, when I first had to sit down in medical research lab with people from National Institutes of Health who were putting chimps in five foot by five foot cages for maybe 30 years because their bodies are so like ours. Our closest living relatives, scientists who refused to admit the equally striking psychological and behavioral similarities. And I, I'd been for the first time into one of these labs because I knew I had to see for myself and I came out shattered, shocked, almost in tears. And there, the top people from NIH were sitting around a table. And so I sat there in shock, and there was silence, and I realized, they expect me to say something. So I said, I imagine that you're all caring and compassionate people, and that you feel the same way about what I've just seen as I do. It took a long time, but the chimps are out of medical research now. In the film Jane, you say that you embarked on a crusade in a sense in 1986 to raise awareness of the plights of chimpanzees to make sure that the next generation are better stewards than we've been. Do you feel that the next generations are better stewards of nature and the natural environment uh, and in our understanding of the place within it? You know, when I first began to study the chimpanzees, there was actually none of the environmental th threats and harm that we face today. So when I began my research at Gombe in 1960, it was part of the equatorial forest belt that stretched all the way from western East Africa right across to the West African coast. So when I went to this conference in 1986 where there were people by then from seven different research sites across Africa studying chimps. 
and realized that right across Africa, chimp numbers were decreasing. Forests were being destroyed by foreign companies coming in, logging, mining. African communities growing, moving deeper into the forest, taking with them disease that chimps are not, that they're able to be infected with, but they, they haven't built up resistance to chimpanzees, mothers being shot to steal babies to sell, chimpanzees being hunted for food along with other African animals in the bushmeat trade, chimpanzees being caught by wire snares, chimpanzees being forced out of their habitat by farming. I knew I had to do something, but I didn't know what to do. So I went into the conference where I learned these things as a scientist. By then I had my PhD and I left as an activist, knowing I had to do something. I felt that I needed to have first-hand experience in order to be able to talk about these things. And so it was when I was traveling around Africa, learning about the plight of the chimpanzees, that I also came to understand the plight of so many of the people living in and around chimpanzee habitat, the crippling poverty, the lack of good health and education facilities, the degradation of the land, and came to a head when I flew over the little Gombe National Park, had been part of this equatorial belt, as forest belt, as I said, but by 1990, it was a tiny island of forests surrounded by completely bare hills, people who were struggling to survive, overused farmland, more people than the land could support. And that's when I knew that we couldn't even hope to help chimpanzees unless we did something to improve the lives of the people. So it seems a theme of your work is that you start on one issue and you see that it relates to other issues like the livelihood of the people in the region and then the natural environment and the globe at large. Do you see that your your scope and scale of influence is increasing as well? I started trying to make a difference by working with the 12 villages around Gombe National Park and introducing our Take Care Takari program, improving the lives of the people in a very holistic way, not as a bunch of arrogant white people going in and telling them what they've been doing wrong, but choosing a group of local Tanzanians, seven of them, who went into the villages and sat down and listened and asked, what can we do to make your lives better? So that's where we began. And that program started with restoring fertility to the overused farmland without chemicals, by the way, so they could grow more food, better health and education facilities by working with the Tanzanian local government, and then introducing water management projects and then microcredit opportunities, particularly for women, mm -hmm. so that they could start their own environmentally sustainable projects. And because it's a, a microcredit, they're not just handed money, but they have to pay it back, and we've had well over 80% repayment. And once they've repaid, they're proud because it's theirs. It's not like handing out money for them to do something and then they do it and then they want more and they become dependent. These are proud people. And so the program became increasingly successful. 
We got scholarships, as much money as we could, to keep girls in school during and after puberty. And we introduced family planning information, which, contrary to what a lot of people think, was very happily received because culture has changed. Large families are no longer affordable by poor people. And so their children's education suffers, and they suffer too. What began with these 12 villages expanded then into 72, and now into 104, throughout the whole of the range of the remaining chimpanzees in Tanzania. But similar programs where JGI works in Burundi, in Democratic Republic of Congo, the Republic of Congo, in Uganda, in Senegal, in Mali, and in Burundi. And so it's having a huge, it's making a huge difference. It's protecting forests, which protect chimpanzees, and by protecting forests, to protect the chimpanzees, you're protecting the habitat for so many other kinds of wildlife. You spent 30 years living in East Africa, even learned Swahili, and 30 years traveling the world. How have these experiences shaped you? When I was a little girl, I loved animals, and fortunately I had an amazingly supportive mother. And when I was 10 and I read Tarzan and Dr. Doolittle, I decided that when I grew up I would go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them, and everybody laughed at me. How will you do that? Your family is poor, you don't have money, and you're just a girl, and girls don't do that sort of thing. But my mother always said, if you really want to do something like this, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of all opportunity, but don't give up. And I wish my mother was alive to know how many people have come to me and said, Jane, I really want to thank you because you've taught me that because you could do it, I could do it too. So I eventually got to Africa. Um, I was invited there by a school friend. I learned secretarial, couldn't afford college. But in order to get the money to get to Africa, I had to be a waitress because you couldn't earn enough money being a secretary in London. And then was fortunate enough to meet Louis Leakey. First of all, he thought that women made better observers, could be more patient. Secondly, he wanted somebody whose mind hadn't been cluttered up with the reductionist scientific thinking of the time. And so I was lucky, and he sent me off to study the chimpanzees of Gombe. Living in Africa for 30 years, coming out of England, and then traveling the world, it must have somehow changed how you look at the world and... Well, I, 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 I can't really answer that question. First of all, being out in the wild was what I'd always wanted to do. It didn't change my outlook. I'd mm -hmm. always, you know, what, what was interesting is when Leakey told me I had to get a degree and there wasn't time for a, a BA, I had to go straight to a PhD. So I became the eighth person in the history of Cambridge University to get a PhD without a prior degree. But when I got there, having been one and a half to two years with the chimps, the professors, of whom I was extremely nervous, told me I'd done everything wrong. I shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names, they should have had numbers, and I couldn't talk about them having personalities, minds capable of problem solving, and certainly not emotions. Why? Because those were unique to us. But when I was a child, I had a wonderful teacher. 
And he had taught me that at least in this respect, these erudite professors were totally, absolutely wrong. That teacher was my dog. <laughs> you can't share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a pig, a horse, a bird, and not know. Of course, we're not the only beings on this planet with personalities, minds, and emotions. And we are part of and not separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. So it was my mother who had taught me to have the courage of my conviction and my dog who enabled me to stand up to those professors and the chimps because the chimps are so like us biologically we share 98.6 percent of our dna with them and so with the biological similarity and the psychological and behavioral similarity science was forced out of its narrow way of thinking and today, students can study animal personality, animal intellect, animal emotions. And I couldn't have studied those particular things because they didn't exist. And it's a tremendous contribution to the field of science. Many still believe that the Chavot cave in Paris, dating back to 30,000 BCE, indicates superior human intelligence through this ability to abstract. So you write uh, that during your projects, you observed the chimps uh, drawing, which means they had mental powers of abstraction, concept formation, and representation. You also write about them learning sign language and tool making. So in the light of all that profound research, what is your view on what constitutes intelligence? Well, first of all, the observations I made were of chimpanzees using and making tools. And that was using pieces of grass stem to fish termites from their, from their underground nest and leafy twigs, which had to be stripped of leaves carefully to make a tool. And at that time, it was thought that humans and only humans used and made tools. Science had decided to define our own species as man, the toolmaker. That was supposed to make us more different. If you'd gone to the pygmies in the Congolese forest, and ask them. They would have told you, yes, they'd seen chimpanzees using tools. But science has always been rather arrogant. So I did discover that. And I observed many, many examples of chimpanzee intellect. And at the same time, in captive research, people were teaching chimpanzees sign language. And yes, a lot of captive chimpanzees enjoy painting. And you can actually tell which chimpanzee in this group has painted which picture because they have slightly different styles. But when we're talking about abstraction, the story I love best, which could never have been learned but for the sign language work, was a chimpanzee who normally loved painting and filled up her sheets of paper uh, with, with circular design. And on this occasion, she drew a, a line that went up down, up, down, up, across the page. And so she handed that back to her teacher. The teacher handed it back, signed, please finish. The chimpanzee handed it back and said, finished. So the teacher <laughs> said, what is it? She said it was a, a ball, B-A-L-L. -L. So what has she drawn? <gasps> She's drawn the bouncing. Oh my gosh. So this gives you an, a, a little insight into the way a chimpanzee mind works. 
you know, the opportunities for students today to study animal intelligence. Gosh, I wish I was young. It's so exciting. And trees can communicate. We're just learning so much about the natural world. The difference between us and the chimpanzees is the explosive development of our intellect. We've sent a rocket to Mars. We've put people walking on the moon. How is it possible that the most intellectual species to ever walk the planet is destroying its only home? And I think we've lost wisdom. We're making decisions based on, how will this help me now? Or my next political campaign? Not as used to be the case, how will this decision affect future generations? Do you think technology has a role in this demise or can it help? What do you think the role of technology is in this? I think technology, I mean, the developments during my lifetime have been so incredible that a lot of what's happening with technology to me is just like science fiction. If we use our brain in the right way to try to solve the mess that we've created on this planet, then there's hope for the future. But if we continue to use technology just to gratify people, then we're not using technology the way we could and should be using it to create a better world. Do you think that we could somehow redefine what it means to have a meaningful life, a framework that can help us sort of move away from money is God? What are some of the things that we should be optimizing, if you will? This is why I began a program for young people, Roots and Shoots program, which began with 12 high school students in Tanzania, now has members from kindergarten, university, everything in between in 60 countries. But for young people to change the way they live than for older people who are set in their ways. And that's not saying that older people can't change, because they do. I've got many examples. But if we carry on with business as usual, if we go on feeling that we can continue to extract natural resources as though they're infinite, it's absolutely absurd to think we can have unlimited economic development on a planet with finite natural resources. It doesn't work. It's a big, huge challenge right now, and I don't think we have a very big window of time. It's closing. Everybody needs to get involved. Everybody, whether it's technology, whether it's just the way that we live, the use of our human brain. So this is why I'm spending so much energy in developing our youth program and talking about my reasons for hope in spite of the dark times we're going through. Because we just mustn't let it happen. This planet still has so much beauty. We have such an indomitable spirit. We have so many people doing amazing things. I have such faith in the human spirit and the human intellect. But only if we get together and use these, these things to make the world better for the future. It, it is, literally, we are at a crossroads. We either carry on the way we are, and that's going down into God knows what, or we get together and we find ways to think differently. 
when you were starting out in your formidable career, there was an established dogma of a woman's role in society. Can you reflect on your journey from that perspective of how you broke down barriers, how you blew up expectations, redefined a woman's role? Well, a lot of people think that, you know, I've, I've carved out a path and fought off opposition. It wasn't like that for me. One, I had this amazing, it wasn't just my mother, but my grandmother, my mother's sister. They were all strong women, and they supported me from the start. So I got this, this feeling that I could do anything I wanted because of them, not because of the rest of the world who laughed at me and my, my dreams. So that was, that was the start. And then, how fortunate, I got to Africa and I met Leakey. And Leakey felt women made better observers. You know, there was nothing I had to fight. It just all fell into place. And then I get to Cambridge and I'm attacked for giving chimps names, talking about personalities, minds and emotions. But my dog had already taught me that that wasn't true. And so my mother had taught me that if you meet somebody who doesn't believe what you believe is true, first listen to them, because maybe they've thought of things you haven't. Maybe they're going to change your mind. But if you listen to them and you still think you're righter than they are, and there's no real right and wrong probably, then you must have the courage of your conviction. So I was lucky and I had a wonderful supervisor and he came to Gombe and he said that he learned more in two weeks about animal behavior than the rest of his life. And he then supported me, helped me to think like a scientist, which I loved. And I got my PhD. And so I've never had to fight. You know, I don't call myself a feminist. What I love is a saying by one of the, the um, indigenous peoples of Latin America, and I forget the country and the tribe. I think it was Ecuador. And they say, my tribe is like an eagle and one wing is male, and the other wing is female, and only when the two wings are equal will we be able to fly true. That's my, you know, we need to be equal. There's a tendency for pendulums to swing too far. Women have been downtrodden, they've been subjugated, and they still are in many countries, but I will always maintain that if we're in a civilized society, then there's a place for the, the female and the female aura or whatever you want to call it, and there's a place for the male, and we need to be together. And that's what we should aim for, to make the world a better place. Would you give advice to the young generations of how to live, how to view the future, how to build the future? What's important? Well, when I'm talking to the young people, and I spend my life really developing our Roots and Tutor program, which is all about young people, you know, taking hold of their own future and doing projects to help people, animals, and the environment, and understanding that the, beneath the differences of nation, color of skin, way of dressing, kinds of food we eat, our religion, our culture, beneath all this, we're all one human family. If we fall and bleed, our blood is the same. If we weep, our tears are the same. If we find something funny, we have this wonderful 
releasing laughter, which was so important, and people don't laugh enough anymore. We're all caught up in our little, well, I'm not, but people are caught up in their little, you know, they're always on their little gadgets and they're texting each other and they're, I, it's not my world, but it's the world of today. But underneath all of that, we're all the same human beings. And that to me is just the most important part of what I'm trying to talk to the young people in Roots and Chutes about, and it works. They come from Israel and Palestine. They don't talk to each other, they won't look at each other. After four days together, they don't go to bed, they want to sit and talk about how we make peace between our, our nations. So it's working with young people that gives me the most hope because they're amenable to thinking in new and different ways. Jane, it's been a true privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Jane Goodall for sharing her perspective of technology as an ally in the conservation struggle. To learn more, download our free ebook, Discover the Value of Location Intelligence Technology at go.esri.com forward slash location intelligence.